You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Well, hello and welcome everyone to The Way Home Podcast. I'm Dan Darling. Glad to be here with you again today. Uh, Glad to be coming to you via the Dunham Audio Network and the Edify Podcast Network. I'm grateful for Edify for hosting this. If you haven't downloaded the Edify Podcast app, I encourage you to do that where you can catch this podcast and many others. Well, we're continuing our series on the characters of Easter. We're continuing our series looking forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, this is in conjunction with my new book, The Characters of Easter, The Villains, Heroes, Cowards, and Crooks Who Witnessed History's Biggest Miracle. Uh, it's available wherever books are sold. Uh, you can also go to my website, danieldarling.com Easter. That's danieldarling.com Easter and find more information. You can also download free resources for your church or small group. Uh, we have sermon outlines. We have media that you can use for your church. All kinds of things you can use for campaigns and signs. We'd love for you to make this a part of your Easter celebration. We'd be honored to do that. Well, my next guest really is going to be on the program to talk about Easter. He's someone that I've had on here before who I highly respect, Sean McDowell. Sean is an apologist. Uh, He is always out there sharing evidences for the Christian faith. Uh, to young audiences, to college-age audiences, to anybody who will listen. He's got a great series on YouTube where he asks and answers really difficult questions. Uh, Sean has written persuasively about the evidences for the resurrection. I think as Christians, it's important for us to understand that we believe in Easter not just because it makes us feel good and because it's a good story, and it is and it does, but because this is a historical fact that Jesus Christ literally rose from the the grave. And if he did, it changes everything. So Sean's going to come on and talk about some of the evidences for the resurrection. And he's going to talk about what it's like to be a Christian in today's culture with so many of the questions about the, the gospel's demands and implications for human sexuality and everything else. Sean is a great guest. He's really uh, smart, but also very accessible and someone that I really am excited to have on the show. So let's join my good friend, Sean McDowell. Glad to have back on my podcast, back on the way home, my good friend, Sean McDowell. Sean, thanks for joining me today, man. Dan, this is a treat. I appreciate being invited back. I think a lot's happened since we've had you on last time we had you on. I think we had you on for the Apologetic Study Bible, but um, since then, we were talking about this offline. You've, you know, you you teach, obviously, uh, but also you started doing like apologetics on YouTube. So I want to encourage folks to check out your YouTube channel. Uh, and subscribe because you're doing some really cool stuff, interviewing folks, but also just doing some some teaching and stuff there too. So how do you how do you like doing that? You know, as a whole, I enjoy it. When when COVID hit in like March, I started thinking my speaking ministry is shut down, and I don't know how long this is going to happen. I got to come up with some new ministry tools to reach people. So I started using TikTok. I started building up Instagram and I really started building my YouTube channel and there's people that watch it and use it. And we've talked about like cannabis and the Christian near death experiences. 
like people are just hungry for good quality content. So it's a lot of work and sometimes stressful, but I love doing it as a whole. And just, it's cool that God uses it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's just a whole nother generation of kids that are, and I say kids sound like an old guy, but people that are (laughs) tuning onto YouTube, Googling stuff and find, trying to find answers. So it's really cool to think of the potential of like someone might be stumbling on a video and really maybe it could be a turning point in their life. You know, Mm. how cool is that? Um, So I, this is a special series I'm doing on Easter on the resurrection around the Easter season uh, in conjunction with my book, the characters of Easter. I wanted to have my favorite YouTube apologist, Sean (laughs) McDowell here on, on to talk about this. You, you talk about this all the time. You're debating with skeptics you're talking to young kids about this. Uh, I guess, first of all, it seems like every year around this time, there's like a Newsweek or Time or some magazine or whatever, trotting out the same story that debunking the resurrection. And it's usually the same several reasons. Um, I guess my first question to you is, do you feel like there's more skepticism today about the resurrection, given that we're an increasingly secularized culture than there was maybe a generation ago? What are you seeing when it comes to the way that people engage Jesus and engage the, the story of Easter? So I think there's an interesting way to explain this. You and I were chatting about the book I had a chance to update with my dad, Evidence It Demands a Verdict, that he first wrote in 1972. So one of the questions as I was researching this, I had often for my dad was like, how has this conversation changed over like 40 plus years? And he told me, he goes, son, this is his analogy. He goes, there is a tsunami of evidence. I said, what do you mean? He goes, when I started researching this stuff, there were almost no books on it. He had to go to libraries overseas to find this information. He goes, now the evidence, the more manuscripts that we found, the sophistication mm-hmm. of the arguments, the archaeological discoveries. He goes, we have a stronger case than we've ever had. But on the flip side, now skeptics have a voice that they didn't used to have. So 70s, 80s, even 90s, he'd show up and speak in university campus, and there wasn't a voice for anybody really <clears throat> to draw the crowds he was doing and to get to the masses skeptical ideas. Well, this shifted in the 90s, with uh, the internet. And now with social media, we have any single person can have a voice to bring skepticism with any social media platform as a whole. So in one sense, we're seeing greater arguments made, I think greater evidence being discovered, but there's also more and more people with skepticism challenging these arguments than in the past. And I think we also live in a post-truth culture where we used to at least agree on the facts and differ over what they meant. Now we can't even agree on the facts. So one other piece, and I'll move on, is that when we updated evidence in older editions, we didn't even have chapters on like, what is truth? Is truth important? Can you know history? Because people assumed history was knowable and truth is important. Now we had to have multiple chapters on that because people have imbibed this historical relativism and this skeptical approach to even knowledge, let alone historical knowledge. You know, it's interesting you you say that because I've been doing a lot of reading lately, and I'm sure you've been reading, you know, guys like Charles Taylor and other folks. And I, I'm almost finished with Carl Truman's uh, 
Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he talks in the, he kind of translates those really smart people like Taylor and Philip Reef and all those guys. But it's this idea that um, we're in a world now where there's just, there's no sense of the transcendent. There's no, so there's no appeal to the transcendent. Everything is, is here and present, you know? And so you're right. I mean, like when, when you said, um, you know, that this idea that there's a, an authority above us, this idea that there's a transcendent God uh, that you could kind of appeal to maybe 20, 30 years ago, even if people weren't Christians, uh, you, people don't really have that frame anymore. So you're, you're working in a, in almost a completely different environment. I think that's true. And I, I wonder how much of this is shifting in front of our eyes for two reasons. One with COVID, like it's been pretty clear that this disease doesn't care how people feel <laughs> like, Right. Either masks work or they don't. Either the vaccine is effective or it's not. There is an objective truth, and we got to figure it out to get this right. That's one thing. Second, and this is not a political statement, but people uh, on many sides either say they love Trump or they hate him. People mm-hmm. now are calling out certain behavior as being objectively wrong and bigoted and wicked. Whereas in the past, it was kind of live and let live to each his own. Well, that vibe is going away. Now, where that's taking culture, I don't know. But I'm hopeful that maybe one of the positive things that comes out of this past, you know, four years in the White House and COVID is a sense of, you know, there is such a thing as truth. And it's actually important that we know it. That's my hopeful, optimistic prayer. You know, that that's a great point, because in spite of kind of where we are in terms of no sense of the transcendent or no transcendent authority, the created self, as Truman talks about. There are those thin places like uh, where people are actually revealing that they don't believe what they say they believe. That's right. Right. And you just you just said it. I mean, in, in 2020, whether you love Trump or hate him, there's this there's this visceral reaction and people appealing to objective ideas of goodness and decency and character. It's like, well, Hold on a second. Where do those come from? Like those have to come from somewhere. And, you know, I just chuckle whenever, when people say, well, we, we just believe in science or we believe in the facts. Um, so there is a kind of a, an objective layer of truth. Now, of course, we know people say that subjectively. Sure. They believe in the parts of science they like and the parts that they don't. People on all sides do that. I think that's interesting. Um, when I think about apologetics and talking about the resurrection, you know, I grew up in a Christian home as you did. When I encountered apologetics in college, it really reaffirmed my faith. Hmm. You know, here I am. I believed and I was a believer. I didn't, you know, I didn't stray away. But when I was able to read, like when I read your dad's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, sure. it was required reading in my Christian college. It, it was just reinforcing to me like, oh yeah, all the things my parents taught me, this wasn't just because this is our tradition or this is what was good for us. Like this stuff's actually true. And so when we think about proofs of the resurrection, sometimes we're, we're thinking of that in terms of how can I convince my neighbor that Jesus is, is real? But aren't we also doing that to ourselves to convince us, ourselves, and maybe even our kids' generation that what we say we believe on Sunday is based in truth? It surprises a lot of people, but my dad first wrote Evidence Demands a Verdict, not for skeptics, but actually for Christians to have confidence in their faith, number one, that it was true, 
And number two, just to have answers for skeptics who would challenge them. Now, a ton of non-believers have read it, but that was actually the first primary purpose. And I think people miss that. But second, it's not just so we feel good about ourselves. It's about being in ministry when people have genuine questions. Like 1 Peter 3.15 says, being ready with an answer. So I think apologetics has a personal ministry dealing with doubt, spiritual development, and confidence in our faith, but also outward focused in spiritual conversation and evangelism with others. Yeah. And, um, you know, this, I, I, I also think there, there's a, it seems like there's a waning confidence in Christianity among some who grew up in, in the church, whether they see corruption or whether they see, you know, they don't like their parents' political leanings or whatever. And for me, one of my main talking points is to people is, Hey, look, it all comes down to this. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, that changes everything. So strip everything else away. If Jesus truly rose again, that's all that matters, right? Mm. So it seems like that apologetic is at the core. I mean, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that's at the core of when we're talking to, to, to folks about the Christian faith or we're you know, maybe even tempted to be disillusioned about Christianity as a whole, right? So I think you're right. Logically speaking, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus is not risen, our faith is in vain. If Jesus has risen from the grave, Romans 1, 4, then he actually is God. But I think in people's minds, the waning confidence in Christianity is not that they're skeptical about it being true. They're skeptical about it being good. I think that's Mm. the primary lens through which people this generation is approaching it, whether it's evil done in the name of Christianity, whether it's a Christian stance on sexuality is viewed as being homophobic and hateful and bigoted and harmful towards those on the outside, whether it's in the eyes of many people, look at all these Christians take one certain political party and they're ruining the country. I'm not saying any of these are true or false. I'm saying in the minds of people, I think the waning confidence is much more moral than it actually is logical. So if I'm going to talk about the resurrection, and this is true when I talk about issues of sexuality, I want to not only show that Christianity is true, I want to show it's good and it's true and it's beautiful. And I think the resurrection shows all of those things. So it's good because God is in control and he's conquering evil, and he still is sovereign and cares about bad things that happen in the world. And this is the first fruits of what is yet to come. It's true because the evidence is there and Jesus lived and died, was buried, appeared to people on the third day. And it's beautiful in the sense, because when you look at the world, here's a God who cares about the brokenness. Here's a God who's restoring the world and relationships the way it's meant to be. So I think when we make an apologetic today, we have to add those components. Now, again, just to give people some perspective, my dad told me when he would speak on university campuses in the 70s, the challenge is like, give me some evidence. Show me that it's true. Give me proof. What about contradictions? It was this logical debate. If it was true, then the idea was you're supposed to follow it. Now it's like, I could hear a lot of people saying, okay, the resurrection is true, but you know what? I don't want to be a Christian like you. I don't want to be a hypocrite. 
I really don't care. That's one of the big barriers that I think affects the waning confidence many people, frankly, within sometimes and often without having the Christian claims. Yeah, that's that, that's a really good question. And I want to actually pivot to that in a second about Christianity being good, because I actually think that ties in with your current book that uh, we're talking about. But let's walk through a little bit just briefly. I know we don't have like an hours long apologetics class. <laughs> that you would normally teach your students and some of the common, you know, or actually let's back up. Let's just talk about some of the, some of the common things that uh, proofs that give us confidence in the resurrection. Yeah. It seems like first would be the eyewitnesses, right? Yep. And uh, maybe just talk about the eyewitness testimony that is so powerful, not just um, in the first century was meaningful, but also to us, you know, 2000 years later, why the eyewitness testimony is so important. So I I could lay out a systematic case for the resurrection of facts that we know and why it points towards the resurrection being true. Here's two things that I think will get to the heart of your question that are towards the top of my list that I find compelling. Number one, I actually did my PhD dissertation on the deaths of the apostles are the stories that we've heard about Thomas going to India and Bartholomew being skinned alive and Peter being crucified upside down. What's the historical record for these? Bottom line, without going into detail, is I think we know the apostles believed, like you said, that they had seen the risen Jesus. That was the heart of their faith. And they were willing to put themselves in harm's way, we see in the beginning of Acts, for this belief. They're threatened. They're beaten. They're thrown in prison. And even the book of Acts, we have uh, the death specifically in Acts 12 of James, the brother of John. Of course, we have Stephen in the earlier chapters. So what this tells me is not that Christianity is true, but that they're not liars. These guys are not inventing a story of a crucified Messiah, which was totally counterintuitive in that stage in that day, because it was the height of being shamed. They're not inventing a counterintuitive story and then intentionally putting themselves in harm's way, being willing to suffer and die for a lie. That's a very interesting piece of a larger resurrection story that says, yeah, I don't buy the conspiracy theory. I don't think they made this up. They at least think they saw the risen Jesus and were willing to suffer and die for this. Second, another very interesting fact is if you go to the book of 1 Corinthians, so Paul writes this, all scholars believe, agree, virtually all, that Paul actually wrote this in the mid-50s. So we're talking 25 years after the death of Jesus, when there are still people around who knew him and would have heard the stories of him and seen him in person. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, I pass on to you what was passed on to me. In other words, this is a kind of tradition he's giving him. He basically says that Christ died, he was buried, rose on the third day, and appears to Cephas, to the 12, to James, to the 500. And he lists these appearances. Well, this is within 25 years, Paul writes this, of the death of Jesus. But what's interesting about this piece in 1 Corinthians is the way that it's worded is it's actually a creed that Paul embeds into his letter that predates the letter itself. So the letter's 25 years out. Now we know he received this creed at an earlier time. 
Well, if you look in the book of Galatians and Acts, we realize that he goes and visits the apostles within three years and then 14 years later. That's when Paul goes and meets with the 12, or at least Peter and James, etc. So a very good case can be made that Paul includes in this letter in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus died, was buried, appeared to people. He includes it 25 years after the death but it can, of Jesus, but it can trace to within three to five years of the death of Jesus, possibly 14 years later. That's the second option. That is the earliest testimony we have of what Christians believed, probably three to five years of the death of Jesus. And the heart of the Christian faith is what? Jesus died, was buried, rose on the third day, and appeared to the apostles, to Paul, to James, and the 500. That is historically speaking unparalleled in other ancient religions and movements that tells me we're in strong ground that this story is not invented years later and made up, but is very, very early and was transmitted when people were alive and around that could confirm or deny this. That's such a good word. You know, you know, it's interesting to me that the, the arguments are the same like every year. You know that the the really the arguments against the re- resurrection have really not changed substantially. Um, just kind of seem to get rotated. Uh, you know, folks like Bart Ehrman and, and others who have who have made them. I, I guess another question would be when we're when we're thinking about proofs of the resurrection is, uh, or actually, if we're if we're talking about proofs, we talked about the eyewitnesses. It's it also seems compelling. This is not all of the proof of the resurrection, obviously, but it is compelling to us that the disciples would and the, the this Jesus movement would give their lives for something that they either knew to be false or was a myth right and so maybe just talk about how the the burgeoning christian movement that essentially made its way around the world that in itself is in somewhat a, a testament to the truth of the resurrection yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by this. And I can tell you, I spent years studying what actually happened to the apostles. Where did they study? Did they spread the word? What did they believe? And if you, we look back now because we wear crosses on our necks. We think a cross mm-hmm. is great and it's a Christian symbol. But if you place yourself in the first century, a crucifixion was the most physically painful and shameful death imaginable. So put yourself in the position of the apostles. If they're inventing it, why on earth would they invent a Messiah who was crucified shamefully and say, no, 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 Caesar's not Lord, he is. It's so counterintuitive. But then they start proclaiming this with a willingness to suffer and die. Now we can't show that they all died as martyrs. For quite a few of the apostles, it's really hard to discern when History ends and legend begins. But I think we know that the heart of the Christian faith was they believed they had seen the risen Jesus. They believed they were eyewitnesses. They're willing to suffer and die for this. And there's no record that any of them recanted. And I think both Christians and skeptics would have had incentive to record recantations of the faith. So the silence of history, I think, is actually very instructive in this regard. So again, this doesn't prove by itself Jesus rose from the grave because you might say, well, they all thought they'd seen Jesus because it was a hallucination. Okay, now let's talk about why hallucinations don't explain all the facts we know about the resurrection. 
So I don't want to move from their willingness to suffer and die to Christianity being true. But I think it removes the idea that they're that, that this is just a lie they're inventing or it's a conspiracy theory. Minimally speaking, they really thought they saw the risen Jesus and were willing to go to their graves for the depth of that belief. So today, a belief means tweet something out if you stand with it. Wow, that was courageous. Well, that's nothing. <laughs> They're like, I'm going to go preach this publicly and get thrown in mm. prison for it. That's a very different level of conviction. Yeah, I, I uh, it's one thing I try to talk about in, in the characters of Easter that this was a this was a fledgling movement. Mm. You know, like you know, we 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 tend to not understand that first century movement that to be a follower of Jesus was to be part of this weird fringe thing that was happening that, as you said, the cross is this symbol of uh, shame and being despised. So that I loved what you said there about uh, their willingness to die uh, for what they believed in. So we talked a lot about the proofs and there's obviously more in some of your work that I encourage folks. If you just want to just stop and say, if you are doing apologetics with your family or with your church or your small group or your youth group, uh, check out Sean McDowell's stuff. He's got some great things for you that you can check out. We'll have links in the show notes. I want to pivot it uh, in the last part of our time here. You have a new book, Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. And uh, I I think this has a lot to do with what we were talking about the resurrection because one of the things you said was, um, I mean, there's two things we we talked about. One is that if, if Jesus Christ is indeed risen from the dead, that changes everything. That's right. And so that means you listen to the person who rises from the dead uh, about everything, about your life, uh, about, about everything. But it's it's transformative. It was transformative for the, the disciples who are willing to die for him, and it should be for us today. You said today, generations not necessarily asking, is it true, but is it good? It, they're not asking, is Christianity true, but is it good? And a lot of the narrative out there is that it's not good. That it's it's stifling, it it's bad for the world, especially when it comes to our sexuality. That you know, to be Christian, you know, Christians are backward and they're and they're kind of uh, almost hate filled because of the Christian sexual ethic. So, talk to us about why we should still, as Christians, believe in this you know historic two thousand year sexual ethic that the Bible talks about when when it goes so countercultural to what we see in the world. And I know there's even a lot of Christians. Uh, who struggle t- with what they see in the scriptures and what the pressure is to be sort of in the world. So so maybe speak to that. Why should we embrace the sexual ethic? Well, if Jesus is really God and we have his words recorded accurately, which both you and I believe, and I think the evidence points towards, then why wouldn't we listen to the creator of the universe who made us and loves us and cares about us. You see, either we listen to the voices in our culture, which are intuitive and sometimes make sense to a degree, or we trust God, even if we don't fully understand. And you go back to the garden. I've always wondered why the first temptation in the Bible to Adam is don't eat a fruit because fruit is made to be eaten and it's put in the center of the garden. Why didn't God say, Adam, don't kill Eve, right? That'd be intuitive and easy. I think the answer is because God is inviting human beings to trust him, even when they don't fully understand the reasons why. Any parent knows this with their kids. You say to your kids, you got to trust me. This will make sense when you're in college or you're married or you have kids. 
it's the same dynamic, but infinitely more so with God. So the reason we should trust and follow is because God is good and God loves us and his commands are for our good is what scripture teaches. That's the heart of it. Now, one practical way I try to get people to think about this is I was, I teach high school part-time, even though I'm at Biola full-time, I still teach one Bible mm-hmm. class three mornings a week. And I went to my students recently, I wrote on the board, I said, would the world be better or worse if people actually lived the sexual ethic of Jesus? Mm. And they started to realize, well, there'd be no sexually transmitted diseases. There'd be no abortion. There'd be no need for a Me Too movement. There'd be no divorce. There'd be no crude sexual humor. There'd be no husbands leaving their wives for a younger trophy wife. God's commands are actually for our objective good. That's the kind of thing I'm trying to get our students to realize in writing this book. Like even when we talk about marriage, there's something good about kids having a mom and a dad in their life. And we know this if we're honest. So at some point we have to say, this might not fully make sense to you. Do you trust God? But I think we can start to point out certain things to say, here's why God gave the commands that he gave. And that moves in the mind of a young person from just believing something because it's in their spiritual life to crossing that compartmentalization going, oh, this is actually true. And I see how this lives out in my practical life and relationships. That's that's such a good word, one to think through. And I, I've even seen, Sean, some secular folks and other folks say, particularly during the height of the Me Too movement, I read a particular column in the Washington Post that said, essentially, you know, I'm not necessarily agreeing with Christians, but there has to be a better way mm. to do sexuality than, than, than what we're doing. Like this wild west of sexuality, there's got to be some better way mm. um, than just consent. Uh, because it exploits women. And so when we talk about these things, you know, it always goes back to the one who designed our bodies knows what's best for our flourishing. Right. And, and and that's not the only message, but obviously if you tie back into the resurrection, God doesn't just give us a, a plan for the flourishing of our bodies, but Jesus came as a human to redeem our fallen humanity, right. And our fallen body. So we have hope of the resurrection for a sexually broken world. Right. Well, what's interesting is Jesus was raised physically. He wasn't just raised spiritually. Why? Because the body is good. Part of the Christian story is that contra this Gnostic worldview, which we actually see in like a lot of modern day transgenderism as well, is that the natural physical world is good. It's been broken by sin, but the physical world is good. So Jesus affirms that we are embodied souls, so to speak, that we are body and soul by physically rising from the grave and being the first fruits of what is yet to come. So that really raises the question, okay, if God values the body and the soul, how do we love people with body and soul? What does it mean to love somebody in the way I touch somebody? What does it mean to love somebody with the words that I use? Holistically, how do we do this? 
And sometimes we've made a mistake in the church where we talk about like technical virginity. You don't just physically have sex and you're pure. I want to go, whoa, let's take a step back. If we are body and soul, it matters what I put in my mind and it matters what I put in my body because both are good. And that God knows what's best for us, which is why I like what you write in this book and really in all the, the work that you do that you're, we're not just, when we're talking about these hard issues like uh, sexuality and, and what's right and what's wrong, we're not just cursing the darkness, but we're also gi- giving people the good hope of the gospel that Jesus has defeated sin, death, and the grave, and that he is renewing and restoring our bodies, and that he promises to um, to raise us up, body and soul, on the last day, that what's been broken can be restored. And uh, I love that that that's a big part of uh, your apologetics ministry. Well, that, that is the hope that is, we live in what's become an honor shame culture. In many ways today, we used to be a little bit more of an individualistic culture. Well, that's the mm-hmm. culture of the first century and shame is the worst thing to be canceled and to be publicly called out by people for some belief. Well, the good news is what Jesus did in the cross is he covered our shame. We don't have to live in that. There is freedom in embracing what Jesus did on the cross and his forgiveness in our lives. That's the freeing message that we need to live and get across to a world that's just confused and broken. That's such a good word. Well, Sean McDowell, really appreciate your ministry and what God is doing through you. And um, want to encourage folks to get your materials. We'll have links in the show notes there. Uh, for people to check it out. If you uh, are talking about these, well, first of all, you should be talking about this in your family, these issues, uh, whether it's about human sexuality, whether it's about apologetics, whether we can believe God is, what we believe about God is true and good. Um, so visit Sean's uh, website. I think it's, is it seanmcdowell.com? Dot com, I think is a sportscaster last time I checked. So seanmcdowell.org. Okay. SeanMcDowell.org. We'll have the correct link in the show notes here. So, but check out his stuff. But Sean, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit DanielDarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at at Dan Darling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Daniel M. Darling. I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book called The Characters of Easter. It's out with Moody Press. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. This is a production of the National Religious Broadcasters. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.